Morning. Uh, the world is changing, uh, if you don't know it, uh, faster than ever. You know, what, what used to take 50 years to change now takes about five. You know, it used to be that if you had an idea and you wanted to impact your culture, you'd have to write a book or you write it in the newspaper and hope that people read it on Sunday and then, you know, maybe shared it with their friends. It just took a long time for change to happen. Well, nowadays, we are just saturated with information, right? You go home, you have how many channels? You have 468 channels, right, to Netflix, to every social media platform, to the computers you look at all day long, to the computer you carry in your pocket, right? It's just information overload. And because of that, the culture is changing and shifting faster than ever. And as a Christian in America, you can feel this change. So the gap between, let's call this biblical beliefs, and the predominant beliefs of the culture is growing. It's, it's widening. And as it widens, it's like a piece of fabric being stretched, and you can feel the tension. And so the average American doesn't believe or live like a Bible-believing Christian anymore. Now, this is not to say that there was ever this time that America was 100% Christian or anything like that. But any longitudinal study will tell you that over the last generation or two, the amount, the percentage of Americans that hold to Judeo-Christian values has decreased drastically. And so what is the follower of Jesus to do about this sort of changing of culture that's just happening at a more rapid pace? Uh, Let me give you three failed strategies, and then we're going to look at what the Bible says. Uh, For one, we could run and hide right? We could. We could completely remove ourselves from the world so as not to be polluted by it. Christians have tried this many times in history. I mean, I think the Amish are a good example of this, right? The problem is you can't do that strategy and still obey Jesus, right? Because he tells you to go out into the world and obey him by telling people about him, right? And well, it's hard to do that when you're hiding. That's a failed strategy. Second, second idea, right? We could fight a culture war. Now, this was attempted, many of you lived through this uh, in the 1980s, uh, into the early 90s. Uh, many of our Christian leaders thought that they would win the culture back through legislation, uh, through politics, uh, and just by trying to change people's morality, how they lived. And they lost miserably because you cannot legislate morality. You, you can't take rules and beat the other side into submission, right? The Pharisees drive this, right? It doesn't work. Rules don't change hearts. And there's a third failed strategy that Christians have attempted when they feel the culture drifting away from them. And in this strategy, Christians have reasoned that they must adapt. And they adapt what their Christian beliefs and morals are in order to become more palatable, more acceptable to the culture. This is a strategy that's been really popular amongst uh, certain groups of Christians over the last 30 to 50 years in particular. And despite its continual failure as a strategy, it still continues to be pitched to Christians. And so I want to spend a, a significant amount of time this morning comparing that particular failed strategy with the Bible 
as we look at, okay, where is the actual power source for reaching the world, for how we engage with our changing culture today? Uh, let me make one uh, more clarification piece, just semantics here. When, when I say adapting to the culture today, I'm not talking about uh, how missionaries or churches uh, try and use the same style of music or the similar language or terms that the culture speaks. I'm not talking, Christians have always done that. The Bible tells us to do that. Uh, what, I'm, what I mean today when I say adapting to the culture is adjusting your morals and beliefs so that they fit with your culture. You know, I just, I love, I love, I love, I love the Bible. It's 2000, the New Testament is 2,000 years old and is still exceptionally relevant to our culture. So think about this. When Christianity begins spreading into Europe in the first century, Europe was basically completely pagan at the time, meaning the Europeans, they worshipped idols, statues. Uh, they prayed to the gods and goddesses of Roman and Greek mythology. Like, if you think we look weird as Christians in America today, I guarantee you that the Christians in Europe looked even weirder to the Europeans around them in the first century. So it's within that context that the writers of the New Testament are encouraging their young churches. And so their writings are incredibly applicable to us today. So I want to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning. So there's a Bible under every chair if you want to follow along. Uh, we're going to be on page 952 in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, or you can follow along in the Renovation Church app. You just have Bible uh, in weekly verses. So Paul, he's writing to these new Christians in Philippi, uh, which is actually in Greece. And see, many of the Christians there, they're, they're struggling with deciding if, do, do they want to look, act, and believe like the culture around them? which is really different, or do they want to look, act, and believe like Christ? Because they're starting to get some opposition for living like Christ in their culture. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Here's the word of God for us today, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you, before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. All right. In both the letter to the Ephesians, uh, and in the a letter of James, uh, one of the things that uh, you see is we're told in Scripture that the culture is often uh, compared to the waves of the ocean. That it goes back, goes into the shore, right, and it comes out. It's tossed to and fro, the Scripture says. It just go back and forth. Any student of history will tell you that's what culture looks like. It's always changing its mind. But Paul says the task of the Christ follower, as the waves come in and they come out, the task of the Christ follower is, what does he say? To stand firm. 
Like as the waves are crashing into you and they're just pulling you this way and that, they're calling you foolish for believing in the Bible, right? They, they, they tell you you're intolerant, you're, you're, you're a bigot. They're pushing you to give in to the lost like they are, to give in to greed like they are. All when you feel Jesus, like we've been talking about in Luke 9, saying, no, 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 self-denial, right? As you feel the waves pulling you off of Christ, Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm. Glued to the foundation of Jesus and his teachings. In verse 17, he was basically saying, hey, 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 no, no, stop looking at the culture. Eyes on me. Eyes on me. So watch me. Watch your Christian leaders. Watch your elders. Right? Not the culture. Why? Because God is unchanging. His truth is unchanging. But the waves, they never stop moving direction. Right? And that's history. You know, one of the fallacies that the culture is promoting to us in America right now is that culture wants you to believe that we are on this one long climb upward and that we are always progressing to a greater revelation of truth. That every generation is more enlightened than the one that came before it. But that's ridiculous. That's as C.S. Lewis brilliantly labeled chronological snobbery. The idea that just because you're further down on the timeline of history that you know more or that you're more enlightened or that you are more moral is ludicrous. And any student who's ever spent even one course in history class will tell you that's ridiculous. Right? The 20th century, for example, is one long dizzying mess of the culture just changing its morals back and forth. And yet this culture is still calling out to you as a Christian in 2019 and they're saying, hey, don't miss this. Adapt with us. Or they'll say, or you're going to be on the wrong side of history. I would just say to you, stand firm. Don't believe them. They're going to be contradicting themselves in 25 years. What, what is it that always lasts in history? It's Jesus and his church. As the witty and brilliant G.K. Chesterton uh, once remarked about world history, he said, at least five times in history, right, this is the Roman Empire or the, the European Renaissance, the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. People thought, oh, Christianity will never last. And in each of those five cases, it was the dog that died. And so Christians are called to stand firm on the teachings of Jesus despite whichever way the waves might currently be hitting them from. And I just want to walk through three reasons of why that's true, particularly from our passage today. Here's the first one. Why we should stand firm as believers. The world's destiny is their destruction. Okay, you're, maybe some of you are like, well, buddy, that's <laughs> super intense. I didn't say it. That's what Paul said in the scripture, okay? So look at verse 18 again. He says, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. He's talking about people who don't follow Christ. And he says their destiny is their destruction. Now, notice in the passage, he says, and I tell you this with tears. You can't talk about this unless it breaks your heart that people are going to be separated from God. Because their minds are just set on the culture, on earthly things. Their God is their stomach. 
they're just adjusting to feed their stomach, to feed their flesh, right? They're adjusting their morals around whatever makes their life easier or happier. There's no fixed sense of right and wrong in the culture, and their destiny is their destruction. Jesus talks about the same thing. This is the wide road that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to, what does it say? Destruction, and many enter through it. Like, it may seem fine while you're on earth and you're looking at everybody else in the culture as sort of your metric of what's normal. Right, it might seem fine to just fill yourself with pleasures and whatever you want, do what you want to do, to live as if you are on the throne of your life. But what will you do when you die and you find out that Jesus Christ is on the throne and you've rejected him? Stand firm. Trust in Christ. And maybe you need to trust in Jesus Christ for the first time and surrender your life to him, not the culture. This brings us to the next reason why we stand firm. Why, why we feel like we don't need to adapt as the culture swings back and forth. Second reason is this. You, as a believer in Jesus, the Bible says, are a citizen of heaven. Uh, look at Paul's words again in Philippians, verse 20 now. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the, watch, he's just talking about the resurrection of you, who by the power that innate, we saying this this morning, that we will share his resurrection, to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, contextually, some of the Philippians in Philippi, in Greece, would have been Roman citizens. Uh, some of them would have not. Uh, to be a Roman citizen was highly coveted because you were then, you were esteemed, you were connected to the best of the best in relationships and in privilege. Everybody wanted to be a Roman citizen. And Paul's saying, hey, hey, Roman citizen, that's great. He's a Roman citizen. But he's saying, friend, if you're a believer, you have a higher citizenship. Your passport reads citizen of heaven. Not just citizen of Rome or of Greece or of America, of heaven. And so therefore you can stand firm when you encounter opposition and you're going to encounter opposition. Right? Christians have always encountered opposition when they're living as, as the Bible teaches and not the culture around them. Jesus told you to expect to encounter opposition if you follow him. Look at his prayer to the Father, John chapter 17. Jesus says, I have given them your word. That's the truth that we stand on. And the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Okay, we're not called to run and hide, but that you protect them from the evil one. Okay, so when it, you're in this spot, maybe the pressure is coming from your family. I don't know, maybe it's from what you just see on social media, maybe it's from people you work with, and you feel like the waves are just like, why are you this? Why are you that? And then just crashing into you. If you're a believer in Jesus, and you're going, oh, I'm not like these other people in America, you are a citizen of heaven. Like, oh, but I you are a child of the king. I just feel like I, it would be easy. You are, you, you, your name is written in the book of life. 
Ah, but it would just be so much easier. He's going to transform your body to be in heaven forever. This life is just a blink. And so we stand on the promises, right? The truth of God that we are citizens of heaven. Right? Don't, don't throw that away for some cultural fad that's going to be looked at as archaic and obsolete in just 50 years. Okay, so what happens in history uh, when Christians don't stand firm? Because we have plenty of examples of this in the last 2,000 years. History shows us that Christians don't typically forsake biblical teaching in one fell swoop. It always starts small. It starts with um, Christians will feel pressure from the culture, and they're labeled, right? They're labeled as unloving, or uh, sometimes in history it's been simple-minded. A lot of what we hear nowadays is we're narrow-minded. And so some Christians come up with this third strategy that we talked about, right? And they they feel this pressure, and so they, they feel like the answer would be if we adapt biblical teaching, and instead we just go with the culture just on an issue or two, or, or, or maybe three. It's never a forsaking of the faith at first. It never is. Usually it's, okay, let's just keep going to church. We'll keep praying to Jesus. We'll keep all the love your neighbor stuff. You know, no one has a problem with that. But we're going to leave out now some of the biblical teachings about hell or abstinence, right? Nobody likes abstinence, right? <laughs> or, or holiness or whatever. Except that, here's the problem. As soon as you take even one step in adapting the gospel of Jesus. Even one step, basically, you have given up one of the most important Christian doctrines. And that's what we call the doctrine of inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy is that Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God. It is completely authoritative for how we should live our lives. You see, and once you don't fully believe in the Bible anymore, and you can kind of pick and choose which parts of it that you believe in, well, what? The the Bible pretty soon becomes just another book. You have effectively, essentially, usurped God's authority in your life. And if you're kind of picking and choosing because you know better, well, then pretty soon God isn't that important in your life. And you can track that exact decline over and over again in certain denominations and certain groupings of Christians all throughout history. In fact, I want, I want you to take a look at this chart. I'll walk you through it. I know it's a bit hard to see. Uh, this was uh, just published uh, two weeks ago. Uh, what it does is it attracts uh, Americans' affiliation with a religion since 1970. And so you know, sort of x-axis, your horizontal axis here is time. So from 1970 uh, to 2020, and your vertical axis is the percent of the population that affiliates with a particular religion or denomination. So uh, I know it's hard to read the words, but in this uh, deep purple here, uh, this is uh, Catholicism. So people who would identify as uh, Catholic. Now, I don't know what you think of Catholicism, uh, but one of the things you can say about Catholics is they don't change what they believe in, right? <laughs> For the most part. Like, the culture can be saying whatever they want, they're not changing, okay? And so what you see is in Catholicism, you have here maybe 26% of the beginning of the 70s, today roughly about 24%. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of factors, right? There's immigration is a huge factor in that. Uh, but for the most part, unchanged in America. Uh, evangelicals, 
are in of red. Now, uh, evangelicals are uh, Bible-believing Christians. These are people who they believe the Bible is true. Jesus is the Son of God. We're saved by faith. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Um, that, that, that's us. Again, in red, uh, there's a little bit of an outlier here, but barely has moved. In, in the early 1970s, you're at about 21%, 22%. And here today, there's a peak a little bit in the 90s, but you're roughly at about 23 24% today almost unchanged. In fact, it's higher than it was in the 1970s. Over 50 years! Uh, but look at mainline Protestants. Mainline Protestants is right here in uh, sort of light blue. It looks, it, the chart looks like this. Now, mainline Protestants, if you're not familiar with that term, so there's a drop here from about 30% to uh, just about 10% in just under 50 years. If you're not familiar with that term, a mainline Protestant uh, are denominations like Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian. Now, we need to be really careful here. I'm going to try and do this as carefully as possible. Because there are subcategories of each of those groups that are amazing, Bible-believing, gospel-infusing churches. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod would be a great example of that. Many of the Reformed churches under the Presbyterian wing. And of course, even within any particular denomination, there are certain churches, maybe you grew up in a church like this, right? and they're just amazing examples of just worshiping and bringing Jesus to people. But as a general rule, over the last 50 years, through the span of this chart, the vast majority of those churches felt the pressure of the waves, and they decided that they would adapt their beliefs to become more palatable to the culture. And so they let go of many of their biblical beliefs. In fact, they let go of many, most of their beliefs of their founders, like Martin Luther and John Wesley. And they let go of their beliefs on hell. Uh, they let go of their beliefs that salvation is only through Christ, of their beliefs on God's standards for life and holiness and countless other Christian doctrines. And this is what you, as a Bible-believing Christian, we, you, I pray to God that this just hits your mind this morning, that we can learn from history. Rather than their strategy succeeding in making Christianity more attractive to the culture and thus sort of reigniting some sort of spiritual interest, there's almost nothing left of mainline Protestants in America today. If you go back to pre-1970, this Protestant line right here, mainline, is actually higher than 30%. They've literally lost, not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, not millions, they've literally lost tens of millions, tens of millions of adherents in under 50 years. And the groups that didn't adapt their message, they said, you know, this is what we feel like we see in Scripture, almost unchanged. Why? Because when you adapt Jesus to not look like Jesus, and and every single person can kind of come to their own beliefs, nobody cares anymore. There's no reason to come to church when I've just made myself God, when I know better. And that leads us to the third reason as Christians why we must stand firm on the truth. And it's this. It's only by looking like Christ, not the culture. It's only by looking like Christ that we change the world. The power 
is not in looking like the world. You don't win the world by saying, oh, we got to look more like the people in the world. No, the power source is in looking like Christ. And when we stand firm on his truth and we point the world to Jesus as our God who can forgive and change your life, the power's in the gospel. But when we move off of it, we empty the cross of its power. Just imagine that you're like a few feet into the ocean, right? And you can feel the waves hitting you and going back and forth. And I want you to imagine with me that you're sort of standing on this waterproof power source, right? Like as you push down with it on your feet, that enables the power. By standing there, it's what lights you up. It's what points the way. It's what gives power to your words, But when we let the waves of the culture push us off the truth and we don't stand firm, we lose the power of our words. And history has just proven this time and time and time and time and time again. We can't improve the gospel by adapting it. You can't make it better than Jesus made it the first time. You know, there, there is a major cultural and religious shift happening right in front of our eyes right now. And you can see this in particular in urban America and even in fast-growing suburbs like this in suburban America. See, many of you, when you grew up and you went to school, you could look around at all of your classmates and you could say, oh, they're Lutheran, they're Methodist, they're bad. Almost everybody in your class went to church. We were a churched culture. Now, that doesn't mean everybody was saved, Right? <laughs> But in general, people went to church. Well, over the last 10 to 25 years, as people started leaving churches en masse for the first time in America, a good portion of America became what we call de-churched, meaning they went to, kids as, they went to church as kids, but now as adults, they don't go to church anymore. Okay, this is why you see churches hang up banners and they say things like, try church again. Because right? the general culture in the suburbs here, most people were in church as a kid. Okay, this is why we can have egg hunt outreaches, and people come because they're just trying church again. I will tell you right now, in five to ten years, even though what we're doing right now is insanely successful as an outreach, in five to ten years, I just don't think it'll work at all anymore. And I'll tell you why, Mathematically. Blaine is a bit of an outlier because it's so fast growing. So the numbers, the percentage of people who aren't in church because the younger community is even higher. So right now, 85% of people aren't in church in the city of Blaine. And surely that number is probably lower if someone's in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even higher for someone maybe in their 20s and 30s. It averages out to about 85%. So think about this. What percent of elementary kids who are going to be in Fayed in this very room tomorrow morning. What percentage of those kids have ever set foot in a church? I'll tell you, maybe 10%. Maybe. Look at this chart again. Uh, What you see here, I don't know if you saw this before, this sort of light green here, it kind of goes like this, it's sitting at like 7, 8, maybe 9%, and then there's this meteoric rise, and it is not stopping. That is what sociologists call the nuns. Uh, Not like Catholic nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They have no affiliation. Typically they are not atheists, they're not even agnostic, they just are nothing. 
That group in 1994, that is not that long ago, was just 9% of the country. Now it's in the middle 20% and is showing no sign of stopping in its rise anytime soon. And this is for adults. For kids, it's already way higher. We will not reach them by looking like the world. If we look like the world, they'll never see us. If we want to reach this city for Christ, we want to reach this county for Christ, we won't do it by hiding and isolating ourselves just to protect ourselves. We won't do it by fighting a culture war. We won't do it by adapting the gospel. We do it by staying in the world by getting to know our neighbors, by loving and serving our our co-workers, and yet standing firm and not changing the powerful message of Jesus. We do it by being in the world, but not of the world. But remember, we live in this tension, right? Your job is not to change the message so it's more palatable. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, and I've always found this helpful as a believer, he says, our message sometimes to certain people is like the aroma of death. They hear it like, oh, you're saying I'm a sinner. Persecution comes. And sometimes that same message, he says, is like the aroma of life. I mean, think about what we're saying to people nowadays. We're saying, hey, we are all sinners. In fact, you're a sinner. We're saying there is a right and wrong. And God, a moral source above us, has defined that, and so thus we don't get to redefine it. So yeah, sometimes people are going to react negatively to that. They always have. Jesus told us to expect that, but we dare not change that message because it's that exact message that's the power source to change lives. Now, I want you to think in your mind about a friend that you have that doesn't know Jesus. Go ahead, just think of somebody. Maybe it's even something, somebody that you're thinking of inviting to Easter in two weeks. If they are like most Americans, I would, get, I would bet that their life is probably a bit more difficult than they've let on. We're not very good at that in our culture, especially in Minnesota. My guess is that they have experienced some hardship, maybe even anxiety. And they're probably looking for answers maybe more than they've let on too. What do we offer them? Like, what does any Christian offer them if they say, no, yeah, I mean, I, I like Jesus, but I don't really fully believe the Bible. Like, there's most of it I like, but there's some parts I don't like, and you can kind of take that up. What do we offer them if that's what we say, if that's what Christianity becomes? We offer them nothing. No one is interested in surrendering their life to a God they already know more than. And that's why you always see this decline as soon as people step off of believing in the scriptures. Nobody cares. But what if God is bigger than us? What if if God knows better than us? What if we're not God? What if they can know the truth of the gospel? That yes, they're a sinner. And we're sinners. In fact, we're major sinners. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot turn our lives around. But despite, despite the absolute ugliness of our sin, Jesus loved us 
anyway. So much so that he died in your place. And he offers you forgiveness and a new life, eternal life in heaven, if you would just trust him and forsake the ways of the world and embrace his life-changing love. That is where the power is. The power source is standing firm on God's never-changing truth. It has been changing lives and infusing people with love and joy for 2,000 years, despite about 1,000 cultures, most of which don't even exist anymore, telling it that it's never going to last. Well, guess what? It's lasting. And it just keeps changing the world. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm on the power source. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth and that we as a people have been changed by it. God, I thank you that people delivered this message to us without changing it. Lord, thank you that despite the ugliness of our sin, you would send your own son to die on the cross for us. God, we want to just renew our trust in you this morning. And God, as we think about your death for us and what you did and what you can do for the world around us, we just want to come to you and worship you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.